My name is Scott Challoner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. It is a little bit of a brighter spring morning here in the capital today and joining us on the show to hopefully add even more warmth and brightness to affairs is Zenat Jiwa, the CEO of the Asian People's Disability Alliance. Uh, the APDA is a charity based in Halston, Brent, which provides services to meet the needs of disabled people and carers within the Asian community. Um, Zenat, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and by all means, thanks for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure having you. Good morning. It's lovely to, to speak with you today, Scott. Yeah, fantastic. Now, obviously, I did mention in that introduction there that we'd hopefully be adding a little bit of brightness to affairs this morning. But the reality is we are going to be discussing some very, very serious issues on the uh, the programme. And that is um, a range of things that are currently sort of impacting the care industry. Obviously, the sector has been massively affected by the impact of COVID over the last couple of years, but very specifically in terms of its resources by the no jab, no job policy, which meant that all care staff had to be sort of double vaccinated to be able to continue to work in the sector. Now, obviously, that ruling affected the care industry, saw a lot of different members of staff offloaded across various providers, but was later overturned in the context of the NHS before it was going to come into force for the health service. But looking at yourselves and looking at the care industry, what has the fallout from that policy been now that it has been enacted? Yes, yeah, so that it has quite had a huge impact on, on all of us in the care sector. So we've we've lost, you know, a, a few staff members as a result of it. Um, uh, sadly, very good, hardworking and dedicated staff who felt that, that you know, their choice was to to not have have the vaccination um and yes so we, we felt it but we've also had some some good uh, uh retention of staff as a result of the vaccination as well and the staff who have been vaccinated have been well and uh, continue to provide the care as a result of it so we've had a balance of the two so we've had a good story and a little bit of a sadness but um yeah so it's i think it's going to to create uh, more opportunity for more staff to come back but again it's building up that staff base which takes time and currently with the numbers of people that require care um, unfortunately it puts us in a little bit of a predicament it does, doesn't it? And it's not exactly an easy recruitment environment for care right now, even though there is a huge amount of goodwill toward the industry, toward the pandemic. There is still, you know, a very kind of negative perception of the sector. And a lot of that is driven by the sort of lack of competitiveness in remuneration, especially. So we're seeing a lot of care sector staff that are exhausted, that are stretched, moving into other diff- um, industries, um, such as retail, for instance, and they're getting more um, in terms of their wages. So that's also a big issue that you're currently up against, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That is that is our ongoing situation is that um, with even with the staff with the best will in the world, they still need to, you know, pay bills and, and survive and live. So if it's a choice that they're presented with, with a higher, higher rate as a result of the poor rates being paid uh, for care by, you know, by commissioning teams, um, they unfortunately, even though they are dedicated to to us and and to the service users they provide care for, they they often have to take the the route of going to another um, job. And often it's it's you know the supermarkets who win from this situation because they get very good staff that we have trained. We've invested a lot of time in and and um, 
support with them. Um, but they've had to take the, the higher paid route, um, which is, again, impacting on our ability to provide continuous uh, sustainable care for our service users. And I suppose in tandem with the um, sort of no jab, no job policy and the impact that that had, I suppose even though that's been reversed now, it's not going to be as simple a case as actually bringing those staff members back into the fold because they've probably already found jobs that have been sort of better paid and they could be lost to the care sector forever. That's the reality. Absolutely. And these and these have been good, hardworking and, and knowledgeable and skilled. And I, I think what's forgotten about the care sector is, is the skill that it takes to deliver. And I think it's been undervalued highly for many many years mm. um, and it's not just the physical skills it's the soft skills that people aren't aware of the ability to engage to, to speak to people to support them and, and provide them that interaction that maybe as somebody who's receiving the care would not see somebody in, in a whole day except for that care worker mm. and I suppose that perception of care as a non-skilled industry as false as it might be the fact that that has also sort of filtered into government as well that's also proving to be a major issue isn't it because with that um, sort of yeah. industry perception it's not as easy to sort of recruit from outside of the UK because obviously the visa sort of a provisions won't be won't be there to actually bring the staff in so you've got to look at the domestic workforce but there's not a great amount of people from the UK that necessarily see care as the career they want to go into absolutely it's been totally undervalued at all levels um whether it's through you know people's perception of care um the the costing against personal care and care delivered at home has always been undervalued and then also um immigration rules around care and the role that the, the care worker provides has never been identified as a, as a skilled role. Um, and that makes it uh, triply difficult for us to be able to recruit and retain. And the main issue we have is about retention of good staff. Um, and then uh, being able to to get all the other um, uh, staff that could potentially be, you know, within the workforce within the UK, but due to, um, restrictions around who we can we can you know uh, recruit and where the pools of, of staff we can recruit from it does very much limit us um and this has a huge impact on the actual services and i think that's been totally underestimated the impact of of even a missed call um that can happen as a result of, of lack of um, enough staffing within the workforce across the uk and i know that there's been you know, thousands of cases of, of, of missed calls and, and then the long-term negative impact of, of, of the health of the service users. Exactly right. And um, obviously you mentioned there as well that even despite the many challenges you're facing, you've managed to do sort of quite well with staff retention. So what sort of measures have you kind of actually put in place to sort of make sure that that's the case and that you've managed to keep people on board despite everything going against you? Yeah, so as an organisation, so we are a um, we 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 run as as a as a charity as well as a company and as a social enterprise. We're also all encompassing, um, and we are also a deaf and disabled people organisation ourselves. So we're run managed um, by disabled people, people with long term health conditions and impairments. So we understand. So what we've done is we've utilised any of our own resources to be able to re- retain our staff um, and pay them. So when they've had sick days etc um whereas in you know we're not commissioned and um the the local authority to pay for the care um don't often pay pay staff or pay for the staff time but we will put that in to make sure that the staff are looked after because i think 
if the staff are looked after, then they will be able to, you know, have that clear mind to be able to look after our service users. And, and the whole circle is, is filled. If, if we don't look after our staff, you know, we, we really are struggling constantly to be able to then look after service users. And I suppose there's been more of a pressing need to kind of look at the sort of physical and mental well-being of the health and social care workforce, given the impact that COVID has had. They've been stretched, they've been worked to the bone, haven't they? And quite often the resources haven't been there, meaning that they've had to take on a much um, sort of larger burden than maybe they would have. So that's vital, isn't it, to make sure that their well-being is in the right place? Because if your staff aren't in the right area, as you say, in that sense, then what's that going to mean for the end user, the person receiving the care? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what we, I mean, during the pandemic, when we had the initial lockdown, I think everybody acknowledged the role that, that you know, individuals that have played in our society, you know, whether it's the shop workers or the, the, the cleaners or the bus drivers and, and the care staff, they carried on through the pandemic. They couldn't work from home, um, you know, like the other you know, individuals privileged enough to be able to work from home. They carried on and they kept the country going. And I think we shouldn't forget um, these individuals because they need that support now more than yeah. anything to make sure that they carry on and they're able to to, to um, have their lives and, and pay their bills but also do the amazing jobs that they do with, within our societies. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, thinking as well about sort of the perception of the sector, as we talked about earlier, that is obviously a major barrier to sort of the recruitment side of things. But there has been a tremendous amount of goodwill towards our carers, given how they've sort of composed themselves during COVID, kept the country going, as you said. Um, Do you think we can cash in on that goodwill and actually use this as almost a watershed moment to really kind of change how people do perceive social care? Because there was a big assumption, wasn't there, that, oh, um, the government pays for social care, it's uh, publicly funded, um, but obviously people realise now that, given it's so, been so widely publicised, that that's not the case. So if that obviously can sort of be changed and brought into the public eye, surely maybe now is the time that we can also start to change opinion to really benefit the industry. Absolutely. There needs, there needs to be some sea of change in, in, in regards to, to understanding and valuing social care. And I think, you know, that that social care is is the front line you know it's kind of the the one that prevents the long-term situations that where people end up in in hospitals and A&E and I think people need to um, kind of acknowledge it and and at higher levels as well in terms of of government and and local authorities and, and adequately fund social care so that we are able to pay staff the correct and supportive amount that they need to be able to carry on delivering that amazing care that they do but also to be able to 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 live their lives as well and that needs to be a really good balance so that we are valuing them because they're the ones that are stopping people from long-term hospitalization and I think that's been totally um undervalued and 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 not really given the respect they deserve yeah, absolutely. And um, there is that circle of health and social care, isn't there, that if obviously social care was better resourced, it could actually sort of relieve some of the great burden that's on the NHS and prevent long term hospitalisation, as you say. But it's almost being shackled by under resourcing and it's not able to sort of help out in the other manner that it should. Yeah, absolutely. I think the preventative method is, is far better. And I think that that needs to be reintroduced. I think that's kind of forgotten. And we've kind of just done firefighting. Um, and um, in terms of social care and the legibility criteria has been restricted quite, quite in advance. So there's only people sort of who are at 
critical will get that intervention and we need to kind of revert it back to to looking at the preventative measures so that we don't have those extreme situations and the more costly situations that we now find ourselves Exactly right. And uh, it would be remiss of me as well if I didn't touch on the sort of recent development with the um, health and social care levy with sort of national insurance being increased by 1.25%. And the government sees that, of course, as the answer to sort of the social care funding crisis. Of course, um, higher taxes do sort of bring a whole raft of other concerns as well for people, especially given the times that we're living in with the cost of living crisis. But um, do you feel that this sort of when we look in the context of the social care sector, is this a positive step in the right direction toward resourcing it properly? Or are there major concerns on your side that much of that extra funding is probably actually going to be sort of swallowed up by the NHS? And even then, they also raise the national insurance payment threshold. So what the sector is still going to be getting is going to be affected, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a very tricky situation. I mean, the concept in itself to fund it specifically is correct. The manner in which it's done is obviously still a bit unclear mm. um, and unsure because, I mean, there's obviously there's the concern is that those that actually are least able to absorb that that cost are probably going to be be hit with this this levy, um, mm. unfortunately. And so there's there's that great concern. There's definitely, I mean, good good steps forward in terms of identifying that social care should be funded specifically because it needs it um, and it should be ring fenced and that my concern again like I think many of my colleagues within social care is that it's grouped with with NHS and the NHS could potentially swallow up a, a larger proportion of what is needed within social care. Mm, exactly right there are those concerns there so sort of in an ideal world Zenat uh, obviously just before we uh, finish up on the other uh, program today um, over the sort of next 12 months what ideally would you like to see in terms of developments for social care to really kind of help the, the Asian People's Disability Alliance really thrive in what it does and allow you to sort of do what it is that you do best to the best of your ability yeah, so I think one of the key issues that we've identified is, is as such the floodgates have opened. So where we had um, the Care Act was 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 um, there was an easement. Um, individuals weren't having their their assessments, and now everybody mm. is. I'm I'm pleased to say having assessments, but then I'm not sure that social care local authorities are are um, ready for it in the numbers and the providers. Um, probably need some support in, in delivering that and, and it comes back to staffing. So we as an organisation have seen a, a quite huge increase in, in referrals. But again, our situation we have is, is, is the staffing. And so we do need some government support, I think, in the next 12 months to, to help us with that staffing issue. So whether it's relaxing of the, of the visa requirements, so that's specifically for the care and social care sector, or there is some other measures that are put in place to try and attract more staff within social care. Plenty to do, certainly, on the part of ministers. And Sajid Javid, if you do happen to be listening to this, please do heed that message. Um, Zina, I have to say, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the show today to sort of really address these issues and look into sort of your circumstances at the Asian People Disability Alliance. And I do wish you all the luck in the world in continuing to deliver those incredible services over the next 12 months and beyond. And by all means as well, do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on. Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. It was indeed an immense pleasure welcoming Zenat Jiwa, CEO of 
at uh, onto the program today and um to anybody as well who might be tuning into this program who might feel that you have your own story to share about some of these issues that we've discussed then you can also come to us to apply to be on the show via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply because we'd love to hear your story and we'd love to air your point of view um, until next time to all of our regular listeners you've been listening to the leaders council podcast with your host scott challoner do take care and goodbye <laughs>